You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The spontaneous emergence of Occupy Wall Street in New York in September 2011 struck a chord that resonated around the world. Like a bolt of lightning out of the blue, the demonstrators in Zuccotti Park chanting, We are the 99%, expressed in words and action the suppressed anger and frustration with the status quo felt by millions of ordinary citizens around the world. By October 15th, Occupy Wall Street went viral over the social networks, morphing into Occupy World Street, when the citizens of 1,500 cities across the planet took to the streets in one of the biggest demonstrations in history to express their dissatisfaction, and with good reason. It is the ordinary citizens of the world who have been paying the price of an economic, political, corporatocracy that has used financial speculation, which has no redeeming social value and only serves the interests of the 1% to exploit the rest of society. The result has been an enormous transfer of real wealth from the middle classes and the non-profit sectors of society, the environment, communities, social structures, to the already wealthy. Susan George, honorary president of Attack, calls the phenomenon one of the greatest holdups of ours or any generation. It is a process that has been accelerating for over 30 years and has reached the point where an explosive reaction to colossal social failure had to happen. Ross Jackson is the author of books that include And We Are Doing It, Building an Eco-Village Future, Shaker of the Spear, The Francis Bacon Story, and the co-editor of Gaian Economics, Living Well Within Planetary Limits. He is the creator of the Gaia Trust and Gaia.org. His new book is Occupy World Street, a global roadmap for radical economic and political reform. Thank you for joining me, Ross. Nice to be here. Ross, you say at the beginning of this book, and I think this is a very interesting observation, that uh, economics is politics in yes. disguise. <laughs> and, and that's a key element in the story that you're going to tell yes. us in this book, isn't it? Yes, it really is, yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that happens, that economics is posed to us as a science. Mm-hmm. But I'd like you to explain to us how it works as politics in the real world. Yeah, well, the idea, I think, of uh, the, the people who are behind the economic uh, uh, system, which is now dominating the world, you might say, we'd like, we'd like to project the idea that it's based on science. And this is partly because, you know, they would, they would like to model their models upon the physicists and the chemists who, who actually have a real, do real science. But uh, when you're dealing with things like people, you know, it's almost impossible to uh, incorporate the, the laws of physics. So it, it always becomes very much more subjective. And so what happens in practice is that the economists make models that reflect the, the wishes and desires of their masters, the people who are the, are the politicians who are in charge of society. So they're, they're like hired guns, really. And the, their, their economic systems will always reflect the, the needs of, of their, uh, their masters. Now, this political economic system is leading us rapidly towards uh, several different kinds of collapse, uh, ecological and economic kinds yes. of collapse. Uh, I'd like you to, to talk about, um, just give us the, the first outline as to what kind of collapse we're looking at and in what time frame we're looking at, especially with the assault on nature. You talk about our growing ecological footprint. What is the... Talk about that in relation to the global hectare acre. acre. Yeah, well, um, the World Wildlife Fund, or, or WWF, produces regularly uh, what they call the Live Planet Report. And uh, this is measuring the uh, impact of humanity on, on the environment. They call it the ecological footprint. And uh, if you look at the evolution of this over a period of, say, 50 years, we've gone from a point where we were utilizing maybe 50%, 60% of the total available uh, natural capital coming from the sun, basically, to a po- point today where we're up to almost 40% above what nature can uh, provide each year. 
And that is, that is a, a, a suicidal path because that means that we're not just living off the, the yield of our natural capital, but we're actually eating the capital. It's like, it's like a person who uh, uh, inherited a lot of money and instead of just living off the interest is actually living off the capital. So it's just a question of time before uh, the system collapses. Now, you asked about the time frame. It's really impossible to say because the point is that the whole ecosystem is far beyond our uh, ability to understand. It's far too complex. But we do know that the major component <coughs> of this increase over the past 50 years has been what they call the carbon footprint. So this is the CO2 emissions which have been um, dissolved into the oceans creating greater acidity <coughs> and into the atmosphere creating greater warming. And uh, there's a limit to how much the, the oceans and the atmosphere can absorb of CO2 before we get uh, an irreversible global warming. And no one knows for sure when that might happen. Now, um, you talk about some of the other uh, aspects of our assault on nature, overpopulation, species extinction, genetic engineering, antibiotic-resistant uh, uh, bacteria, the problem of monoculture, endocrine disruptors. This is a lot to uh, take in. A and I'd like you to just talk about um, factoring all this into your work as a writer in this Occupy World Street to give us a kind of a cohesive vision of where we stand right now, which is it's yeah. pretty scary. It is scary, and all of these uh, different uh, threats are in a way tied together. Uh, and it has to do with our, our worldview. Um, the worldview is the way we sort of look at the world. We take it for granted normally, and it changes very slowly. But the worldview that, that has dominated uh, society for the last, say, 400 years roughly, has been uh, what I call in the book the Cartesian-Newtonian paradigm, which is the idea that we are separate from nature, and man is separate from each other. And so in this kind of paradigm, we look upon the ecosystem as simply resources to be exploited. You know, we don't look upon them as uh, part of a, a system in which we are also integrated. And so what is happening is gradually we're having a shift in this paradigm towards what I call uh, a Gaian paradigm, which is a more holistic way of looking at it, where we accept the fact that uh, we are part of nature. And when we mess around with nature, we're in a way uh, shooting ourselves in the foot. And uh, all of these examples I mentioned here are, can be explained as a result of this sort of reductionist, separative, separatist way of looking at nature and um, it's just not the way it really is and so the, the nature is so complex that it has many sort of feedback mechanisms that we don't really understand for example we start burning fossil fuel a uh, hundred years ago nobody imagined that it was going to be a, a possible threat to our very survival a hundred years later and that's just one example and I, when I mention these other ones it's because we don't know which one of them might be the critical one uh, that results in, in a collapse of our society. I mentioned a, an, an, a, a metaphor in the book, which I think explains it very well. It's as if the civilization is on a jumbo jet, and we're flying through the air, and the, and the passengers are gla gradually taking one screw out at a time. Well, you, we know that eventually this plane's going to crash, but we can't say exactly when or where, and we can't say which of these components, I mentioned seven or eight of them here, which of these components is going to be the one that is the critical one at the time the plane goes down. You know, one of the things that uh, this worldview that you talk about um, is so interesting about it is that a uh, hundred years ago, four hundred years ago, I think man had no scientific or even societal understanding that we could do the kind of damage that we did, that we would no. look upon the world as an infinite resource. Yes. And the idea that we could, like, Get all, pull all the fish out of the sea was incomprehensible to us. That yeah. we could cause the idea that we could cause the extinction of a species was incomprehensible to us. Yes. Now this is something we understand, and I think one of the things this book does a fantastic job of bringing home is making it clear that we are part, as you say, we're part of this system, but we're a part that can deplete the other parts. We have the technological and, you know, the mind power and also the population power to deplete the other parts to the point where the whole thing goes down. That's right. We are, we are, we are the, the, the guardians, uh, the shepherds who should be taking care of this planet, and we're, we're not doing that. 
you know, um, there are one of the things that's really interesting is a, a very famous report that I wanted to ask you about uh, to talk about a little bit, um, the limits to growth. Oh yes, it made a great impression on me uh, when it came out. Yeah, uh, tell us a little bit about what 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 was in this report, and you know, the author and and how because there are lots. We've had warnings. This is mm -hmm. what's happening to us has not come without warnings. Well, personally, um, I was impressed by it because uh, it was a, uh, a model which was done by people in my own professional field of operations research. It's a way of sort of quantifying uh, things in the real world. And, and the, the genius of their study was that they, uh, they made a very, very complex world uh, uh, understandable but very simple. Uh, a five-factor model, and this is the essence of, of really good science, in my opinion, because it's it's no it's not difficult uh, to make a very a very complex a complicated model out of a complicated problem, but it's difficult to make a simple model that has the essence in it, and they ha they captured that essence, showing how the inter uh, interaction between things like uh, pollution, technology, technological development, population growth, and so forth, uh, interacted in a in a dynamic system, and they could they could show. Uh, with the very simple assumptions that eventually, you know, something is, is going to have to give. Uh, we can't just go on growing uh, forever. But, you know, if, as you say, three, four hundred years ago, for all practical purposes, we, we had an infinite uh, number of resources. It was, it was the, the new frontier society, and, and, and it was sustainable because the, we, the, the natural capital available was much more than we could actually use. But uh, ecological econom economists, they have a, a concept of scale, which says that, okay, you can, you can exploit a certain percentage of the ecosystem at any time. And as long as it's well below uh, the, what nature can replenish, then basically it's, it's sustainable. You can go on for a long time. But the problem is that we develop habits, uh, and we are creatures of habit. So if, if a strategy is very successful, we'll keep following it. And what's happening with the limits of growth is that we're beginning to run up against a wall where we're hitting these limits, but we still continue the same old strategies. And that is what's the problem today. The, every single country, with maybe the one exception of Bhutan, uh, wants more economic growth. And that is absurd when you think that we're already consuming more than nature can provide. See, but this message just hasn't gotten through to, our, to the political leadership. The, the idea of infinite growth is one of the things I think this book speaks very well to because what we have to realize is is that this planet is not infinitely large. Exactly. And and so we that we have a limit to every resource here. Yes. And we have to work within those limits. But you know that the the, the dominant economic system right now does not recognize this. It's based on abstract mathematics. I mean, they, they the, the economists so much want their their field to resemble physics and chemistry, that they work with very much advanced mathematics and calculus and, and differential equations and all this. But the foundation is so flimsy. They, they, they assume, for example, that if a resource starts to run out, there'll always be another one. It might cost a little more, but, but in, in principle, there's no limits to growth in that theory. Not only that, but they, they, op they operate with a, a concept of uh, equilibrium in the economic system. In other words, they don't, it's not a dynamic model. And so for that reason, they, they did not foresee the uh, uh, crisis of 2007, 2008. But there were other economists who did who were using more dynamic models. Now, let's talk a little bit about something that's important, especially now as we are all watching the gas prices spiral upward for apparently no reason, what you call energy, energy descent. Uh, you suggest uh, that we're very close to peak oil. Um, and you have a, a, a table that's pretty frightening that ranges from predictions uh, between 2006 and 2007 by Iran, the people in Iran who said that's when we'd hit peak oil, and by 2024, chillingly made by Shell Oil Company. When Shell Oil Company says that we're going to be hit peak oil in 2024, that makes me a little bit afraid. Yeah, we should be frightened. And uh, the thing is, the experts all agree that the, the, there is a peak coming, but uh, we don't know exactly when, and we probably won't know until we're two or three years beyond it. Uh, we'll be dead men walking, essentially. <laughs> no, no, it's not that bad, because <laughs> there's lots of oil there. Uh, when you hit the peak, you've used roughly half the total oil. Mm -hmm. But uh, when it starts to decline, the problem is that it will create an economic uh, disaster, you know, because we're, we're so geared up for more and more growth. But uh, we're probably heading for a period of, of negative growth. 
because we're so dependent on, on cheap oil to, to, to fuel our economy. Now, um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, the WikiLeaks papers, because there was some information that came out in the WikiLeaks papers. Uh, this was regarding the question of the of the amount of reserves, which were among other things. Yes, um, well, independent oil geologists—they've always said that the um, uh, the Middle East countries, and in, in particular uh, Saudi Arabia, have gr vastly overestimated the uh, reserves. And uh, what one of these WikiLeaks uh, uh, communications showed was coming from one of the former heads of the, uh, Aramco, the big oil company, um, made that, uh, the estimate that roughly 40% of that estimate is just fiction. It's not there. Well, this is a, a fine case of storytelling that doesn't help us. And I think one of the things your, your book does quite well is convincingly give us a, a story that does help us by hewing more closely to the facts. Uh, tell, talk about the two kinds of uh, um, ecosystems that we have. Type 1 ecosystem versus a type 3 ecosystem. Okay. Well, a type 1 ecosystem is one in which you, you have um, a, an organism which uh, consumes temporary uh, nutrition. For example, the, the maggots that, that, that uh, eat a, a cat or a body which is died and is buried in the ground. Right? It's, a, it's a temporary source and they will explode in population for a period and uh, if they don't find another source of uh, nutrients, they'll, they'll die. Uh, maybe an even simpler example from the laboratory would be if we have some bacteria in a test tube and we come with some nutrients in it, we know from experiments that they will grow very, very rapidly, exponentially, and then when all the nutrients are used up, they'll collapse. So a, a type 1 um, ecosystem is one of that type, which you have uh, resources available for, for a short period, a tremendous population growth, and then a tremendous collapse. Now, if we look at if we look at the um, production of oil uh, under the peak oil model, uh, it shows. As I have a diagram in the uh, in, in the book about this that it's roughly a 200-year period, maybe from the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 21st century. Uh, we're going to have oil available, and the peak is about just right now. We're right in the middle of the period right now, and uh, when that period is completed then that oil, which took you know, millions and millions of years for nature to produce, uh, uh, is gone. And so from then, at that point on, we, we have to manage get to, to, to get by without it. And that, that is the big challenge facing us. You, you talk about all the other kinds of power, coal, nuclear, solar, wind, geo, hydro, geothermal, biogas, wave energy. Uh, you know, lots of this stuff has always, I've never got lots of this stuff, for example, ethanol. Um, here's something that's been touted forever as being environmentally friendly, and it seems kind of insane to me that to grow corn, to fertilize corn, and then to ferment corn, and then to ship it, and then to create gasoline out of it, I mean, that seems like the most absolutely inefficient thing that anybody ever could possibly dream up except the people who grow corn. <coughs> well, actually, it's, it's not as bad as that. Um, you, you can also uh, produce ethanol uh, in a way which is very, very uh, small-scale and local mm -hmm. um, and produce certain byproducts. For example, on a farm, if you produce a, a ethanol, uh, you get a byproduct of sort of a, what they call a mash, which, has, which is a, an excellent feed for, for, for animals. Mm -hmm. And um, you, in this situation here, um, could, I could envisage that this could be a viable a source of uh, fuel for, for for automobiles in the future, um, especially if it's based on on waste products. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's based on um, crops that could be used for food, I, I agree with you. It's, it's, it seems completely absurd. But there's a lot of waste around mm -hmm. um, that could be used for for driving this. It's it basically it's, it's sugars that are being converted. So um, any kind of organic waste, and we have lots of it around, uh, could could fuel such a local development. I'd like you to talk about, you know, the dealing with energy descent and, you know, planning how we're going to use the remaining fossil fuel we have. Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. I mentioned in, in the book the, the, the possible danger of what I call an, an energy trap, uh, which means that eventually um, when we don't have any more oil, we're going to have to rely on, uh, on renewable energy, like primarily solar energy and wind energy and perhaps um, wave energy, it's still a bit of a question mark on that, whether it will be uh, 
good enough. But um, uh, let's see, now, now I've lost the train of thought. What was your question? Uh, planning to use the remaining fossil fuel. Oh, yeah. See, the problem is that when we put, produce a solar plant today or a windmill, we have to use fossil fuel energy to, to build it. Okay? There's no mm -hmm. other way. Um, and if we don't use the remaining oil sensibly, you know, to produce see, to exactly. produce solar plants and windmills to, and get to the point where they are reproducible with their own energy. So we can have a, enough solar plants, for example, that uh, we can reproduce another solar plant using only solar energy. If, if we waste the fossil fuel for the next, say, 50 years and use it for running cars and for heating homes and so forth, then we may get into a situation where we'll never be able to recover. Uh, and so we, ha we risk becoming a subsistence uh, agricultural society on a very much lower population and lower energy use. That, that is what I call the, the energy trap. So we have to be very careful how we use the remaining uh, fossil fuels. Now, you have a, a chapter in here that is not going to bring cheer to anybody's uh, mind called Collapse of Civilizations. Uh, we seem to be heading towards one of those, and, and I'd like you to talk about um, the different kinds of uh, collapses, and in particular, uh, Tainter's theory, which I think it seems to be where you think we're heading, and seems to be uh, that understand if understanding that might help us avoid it. Yeah, <clears throat> well, Tainter's uh, theory, which is is that the ec most economic collapses are based on um, economical problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said his idea is that as a civilization grows, that in the early days it uses the relatively easy uh, solutions like taking the coal off, scraping it off the top of the ground. But as it gets more and more uh, complex, we have to dig down and make coal mines. And the same with oil. The, the easy oil is lying on the surface. But as we go on, it, we have to start uh, dig, going deep down in the oceans and so forth. So uh, the way you can express this is, is to say that there are diminishing returns. You know, for, to get the same energy, it becomes more and more expensive to maintain the society. And the only way a society can grow, he says, is through more and more use of energy. So at some point, the marginal costs start to exceed the marginal benefits. You know? And so at this point, he says, this is often the signal for a beginning of a collapse. Now, the interesting thing is that this gives us um, an, absolute, an actual measure that we can look at. And if we do that, I did this in the book, and I, I showed a, a diagram of what some other economists have developed, which is showing that if you take the uh, gross national product for many industrial countries, in including the USA, it's had a pretty steady rise over the last 50, 60 years. But if you deduct from that the negative things, because the, the gross national product uh, only is a measure of a total level of activity. There's no question of whether it's positive or negative contributions to our actual well-being. Mm -hmm. So as we get more complex, we have more and more maintenance costs, we have more and more uh, social costs, we have pollution costs that we have to clean up after ourselves, we have a lot of maintenance costs, we have health problems because of all the pollution which we're creating. And the net result of this is, if you look at the adjusted um, measure of, of growth, what some people have called it the genuine progress uh, indicator, it's actually flat mm -hmm. since around 1975, which means that all this growth which we've seen since then has been uneconomic. It's really, we've been spinning our wheels in a sense, and the actual well-being, the quality of life, has not improved. Mm, and that's why it seems like the 1970s. <laughs> exactly. The yeah, you could say that. Yeah, <laughs> I, that's no, why many American families feel that they're they're, they're uh, no better off than their parents, perhaps worse off. Yeah, I I I'm, I would count myself among those. Talk about what you call the dashboard report, which I think is a, a, a this is kind. These kind of tools are really important for us because we, in order to you talked about this earlier, um, it's one thing to to get to offer up uh, a 400 page quote, summary of what's wrong with the world economics uh, mm -hmm. that nobody can read, and if they could read, they couldn't understand. Yeah. A dashboard report gives us a, a, yeah. a better idea. Well, there are a number of, of sort of attempts to, to define um, measures of well-being as opposed to just economic growth national product, um, like the genuine progress indicator I mentioned. And, but the, the dashboard report is, uh, is attempting the same thing to, to show um, what the what the well-being of, of a given society is by using graphical techniques. So you, you use pictures and diagrams uh, as opposed to just drawing curves and, and, and making economic uh, statistics. So it, it's a it's a more visual approach 
that probably communicates better in, our, in, in this modern age where people are more used to uh, watching television than, uh, than reading books. <laughs> you know, I, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about, you know, your work um, starting out with creating uh, uh, the, the hedge fund, which is that's a, a significant invention in this world, and moving on to create eco-villages as a personal journey and a personal story. That's a really fascinating story, and I think that informs the vision in this book. It seriously informs it. Yeah. Well, you know, I was uh, um, advising a number of international clients around 1980 uh, in, in, uh, on things like investment and portfolio management and that sort of thing. And that's when um, a number of companies started to be, get concerned about fluctuations in foreign currencies. And they didn't know what to do about it. There was no experience. No one had any experience in this. And so that's, I actually studied that for about two years and really got to understand it, the basics and then began offering advice and products, which led eventually to forming uh, uh, the first currency hedge fund, which was based exclusively on uh, what we call interbank trading rather than on, on the exchanges. And um, it was, it was a, a tremendous, tremendously an intellectual challenge for me because uh, it was right in my field. I had done my PhD thesis many years before on, on, on options and so forth. So uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, we, uh, we were quite successful for a number of years. But then I got to be more and more concerned because I could see that um, it was exploding. I mean, and when I started up in, in the mid-'80s, you know, it was, it was peanuts compared to t today. But as time went on, it became more and more of a casino. And in particular, what was happening when we got closer to the year 2000, was that the big hedge funds, and they were enormous, they were getting so big, and the big uh, banks, they were starting to actually uh, front run the market. You know, They were actually doing what's called front running. So they would actually, rather than just do normal uh, buying and selling and arbitrage, they were starting to affect markets. And they would, they would for example, go into Southeast Asia and crash um, the market. And, and you know, the, the, these markets, smaller markets cannot withstand the currency markets and the equity markets so this collapse when these big hedge funds come in. And then afterwards, so they, the, um, the, the IMF comes in after they've lost all their foreign reserves trying to defend the, 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 the currency. They have to devaluate, they have to cut welfare, and have to, prior, have to prioritize paying back all these banks for their investments. You know? This so sounds familiar. As I believe that a lot today. of that was done intentionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, that, that is what scared me. And another thing that scared me was I could see more and more that the models which I was using and, and which others were using um, were no longer reflecting reality. I mean, there were so-called 100-year events which were coming every couple of weeks. You know, it's as if something was going on that wasn't being reflected. And so I felt that it was a time to get out. But uh, at the same time, you mentioned, you asked about my NGO activities. Uh, the reason I actually f went into that business at all was in order to create funding for my um, for my uh, Gaia Trust Foundation, which actually owned 90% of the company. And so my idea was to earn some money in a period of maybe 10 to 12 years, and that would be enough for me. And then I would use that money to promote uh, what I thought were uh, projects which were leading us towards a more sustainable, more spiritual type of world. And that was what led me into, uh, together with my wife, we were quite in agreement on this. We did, did this as partners, actually, uh, to, to uh, support the eco-village movement uh, because we felt that they were people who were actually taking the challenges seriously and they were uh, making a personal commitment to try to live in a more sustainable fashion. So we thought that you know these people should be supported, but nobody else was supporting them. And also we developed uh, uh, an educational program called Gaia Education, which uh, uh, is a four-week program and is taught all over the world in different eco-villages and other places um, on what we call eco-village design, and how to design sustainable communities. And so these are the two major projects that uh, we've been following. And uh, so I've had kind of like uh, one, ha one foot in each camp, you might say, for the last uh, 25 years. It must have been interesting for you in, in a sort of Dr. Frankenstein way to see hedge funds uh, w which start out to be one thing turned and grow into something that was literally monstrous. Yes, yes, it was uh, fantastic. Uh, uh, it was like they went from being what initially I thought of it as, as uh, that we were, we were, we were at, 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 in the least we were contributing to liquidity in the market, you know, and so it seemed like a socially redeemable uh, 
function to have. But as time went on, it was more and more just a casino, and there was no longer any connection to the real world. It was just gambling, and it was not worse than gambling. It was actually starting to pur purposely destroy uh, certain economies just for to make a profit. Now, this leads us to what you talk about, the evolution of economic uh, beliefs in your book. Um, this, uh, the worldview, as you say, and one of the things that we've come to realize now that is that um, we are literally the world. The humans, we're part of the world, and there's just one world, and there's only so much. Yeah. And there's not, there's, it's not, it doesn't keep, we can't just keep taking, this is a bank account. That's There's right. a limit of mm -hmm. how much money there is in that bank account, and that's the limit of all the materials on this earth. And we're, humanity's at a point now where we're able to overdraw on that bank account, and that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Exactly, with 40% every every year, is it? Yeah. It's growing at about 2% per year, according to the WWF. Uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to me. Uh, about the neoliberal economic system, um, mm -hmm. because I've heard that term neoliberal, and I think, well, that means new and liberal. That must be good. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're great at new, what we call newspeak, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. they're, these guys, they must have read uh, the book uh, 1984. No, what, what the neoliberal system is really, in my opinion, not really about economics at all. It's, it's a political project, just as, as Hazel Henderson said, uh, economics is politics in disguise. And, and it's serving their masters. And the masters, in this case, are what the Occupy movement calls the 1%. Okay, that's just a metaphor. It's the wealthiest of the wealthy. And they, under Reagan and Thatcher in the 80s, basically launched this, uh, what, what has come to be known as neoliberal economics on the world. And basically what is it, it's saying is, the philosophy is that um, all will benefit if we just focus on uh, free, free good flow across the world, the uh, free capital flow, uh, deregulation, privatization. This, that's that's the code word, the code words for what they want to do, and they claim that this will, the tide will raise all the boats, is, is the claim. But we know now, when we look back over the 30 years, that the top one percent are the ones who have gained all the benefits, and the the poor have gotten poorer, and the rich have gotten richer. So it's it's more and more obvious now than it ever was that this is a political project. It has nothing to do with economics. And, and this goes in hand in hand with what you were saying earlier that we're really no better off or that much different no, from the nineteen seventies. Not the average person certainly, but the wealthy are much better off. Oh yes, well, <laughs> I, I I'm not among them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit too about um, the Merck, uh, Pollyani. The, Pollyani, yeah. Yeah, he he had some very interesting theories that you that you find very useful for examining uh, the yeah. economies of this world. Yes, one of them is his observation. Um, you know, what is capitalism? Mm -hmm. And and he says, well, the thing that characterizes capitalism is the commoditization of labor. Mm -hmm. You know, putting a price on on, on labor. And uh, he says that. Within this definition or this concept, there's no real uh, a person or stakeholder, if you like, in the society that naturally benefits. It all depends on the design. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the owners of capital or the owners of production uh, or the, the, the merchant class and the, the financiers that benefit. It de all depends on the design. And that means that we can actually redesign this. We could redesign it in such a way that the what I'd like to see as, as a person who's worked in the private sector in my entire career, I would like to see a solution where the private sector can work and be aligned with uh, the, the, the needs of all eight or seven, eight billion uh, citizens of the world, but within a framework which is protective of the environment and which is protective of human rights and protective of community. Uh, and I believe this should be possible, but it requires that we redesign the whole system. We can't fix it, in my opinion, but we can redesign it. And that's what this book gives us. That's what it's about, yeah. Gives us the tools to do. And uh, uh, one of the things I think you do a good job at is explaining the the story, where we are now, because there's so much misinformation and so many different visions of where we are now. I think that uh, this book does a great job of cutting to the to the to the core of where we are now, so that we can understand what we need to change and why. Now, I, I'd like you to talk about the. Uh, Neoclassical economics and uh, how that fed into neoliberal, and um, then we and where we can go from there. Yeah, well, neoclassical economics is a is a concept which uh, uh, 
appeared around 1900, and this was this was the time when they tried to become so scientific, and they they, they kitted themselves into thinking that they were uh, a scientific and that they were following the path of the physicists, but they they were just kidding themselves. They they were just reflecting the needs of of, of the political masters, and that grade gradually sort of mutated in the 80s into this uh, almost absurd um, neoliberal economics, where it was just the very wealthiest of the wealthy that, that, that benefited. So where do we go from here? Well, if we look at the framework, as, as Polanyi said, you can change the framework. What does that really mean? How can we get our arms around this globally? And I think we can if we look at, at, at the framework as consisting of two things. One, it's an economic philosophy. And second, it's some institutions that you can establish to make that philosophy function. Now, the, the, the current system, Neoliberalism is the philosophy, you know, with free flow of goods and capital and all this. And the institutions which enable it to function, they're the WTO, the World Trade Organization. It's the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and it's the World Bank. These are the three institutions which uh, implement this philosophy and pretty much force everybody to accept it. Um, so what we have to do is you have to define, first of all, a new kind of economics. And here we can start by saying ecological economics. We, we reverse the idea. In the old version, economics is, is supreme and the uh, e ecosystem is just resources. But now we turn that upside down and we say the economic system is a subsidiary of the ecosystem. And we have to operate within the limits that are imposed by the ecosystem, which means we can't use more natural capital than is to be replenished each year if we want to be sustainable. That's, that's the economic philosophy. And actually, the, quite a few economists are already working on that. People like uh, Herman Daly has been a pioneer in this area for many years. The next thing is to realize, and this is very, very important to realize, we cannot implement ecological economics in the current system because these three institutions are designed to do the exact opposite. The WTO, for example, it directly rewards uh, corporations that abuse the environment. Uh, the World Bank uh, is supposed to be erading poverty, but instead they're creating debt in the third world and they're preventing them from developing. The free flow of capital, which is insisted on by the IMF, uh, is preventing the developing countries from exploiting their so-called comparative advantage. You have to have restrictions on capital for developing countries to develop. So you have to replace these institutions with, with new institutions. So in my model, I have a new trade organization. I have a new way of uh, settling uh, trade internationally. I have a new uh, development bank, which actually encourages real development instead of exploitation. Now, uh, just I, I want to just understand uh, some of the some of this backdrop a little bit more um, in terms of um, <clears throat> the the way that uh, the WTO and the World Bank work is by they promote um, deregulation oh. and they are against tariffs, they're against protectionism, yeah. all these things that that enable the smaller countries, the developing countries, to have some, you know, one up or get at least close to equal with the bigger countries. Is, is that a... No, unfortunately, it's the exact opposite. Yeah, well, th those things don't help us, right? Well, the problem is that the philosophy which is expressed in the neoliberal idea of all this free flow of goods and capital and mm -hmm. so on, it's really only appropriate for the large, well-developed uh, economies. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a fine for relationships between the USA and Europe and Japan because they're all advanced economies. They have all kinds of legal experts. They can fight their cases, you know, if one of them gets out of line. But if you start to use the same model uh, with, a, with a smaller developing country, I mean, it's, it's like putting an 800 pound gorilla in the same ring as a 90 pound weakling and you know from the beginning what's going to happen it's going to get, it's going to end in in total exploitation and so the, the system is not helping the developing countries no no we, we need more protectionism uh -huh. you know a lot of people don't realize this but the only way any country has ever become industrialized is through protectionism right and the u.s has been uh, almost the best at that originally it was the uh, uh, england mm -hmm. you know and they, they they showed the americans how to do it and then when the americans after the american revolution they started doing it too they started putting tariffs on all english products while they protected their own infant industries right and the, and then japan after the second world war did exactly the same and china is doing it now 
And every single industrial country has done it. But with the neoliberal system, what we're saying to the developing countries is, you can't do what we did. We're not going to allow you to favor your domestic industries. If you give any benefit to a domestic company, you have to give the same benefit to a foreign company. That's the core of the WTO rules. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they say you can't have infer capital controls, the IMF says. If you want our loan, you have to open your economy up to all these uh, uh, capital, you know, strong capital bases around the world. And that actually is against the IMF's own rules. It's written right in Article 6 in the, in the IMF rules that every country has the right to install capital controls. Mm -hmm. The IMF has systematically forced countries to give up that right if they want loans since 1980. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, it's incredible how they have reversed that, that policy. I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about um, the, the financial crises because we've seen a lot of these and we're, you know, we seem to be uh, in a perpetual financial crisis mm -hmm. and, you know, in a perpetual war as well. And I like to talk about the ties between these two things and, and the, the, what kind of crises, what has caused these things. And you talk about um, unrestricted uh, capital flows. Uh, that can cause a crisis in a country where you don't live or you can let a crisis spread like a virus. Yeah. Well, this is this question of the of the free uh, capital flows across borders, uh, where I'm saying that uh, if if you have a crisis in one country and, and there's free capital flow, it can easily be exported to another country. For example, there were a lot of people in, in Europe and other countries who, who bought into this uh, subprime uh, idea with the AAA rating of, of what was basically junk and uh, lost a lot of money on it. Now, if, if they had had uh, uh, more capital controls on, they could have perhaps avoided that. Um, and in, in the major crises, by the way, in 1998, 1999, in Southeast Asia, there were only two countries who, who weren't uh, almost destroyed, and that was China and India. And that was because they had capital controls on. They don't. China is very clever in that regard. They don't just allow uh, the capital to come in at, at, at the discretion of, of foreign interests. They decide. Uh, but what causes financial crises? Well, first of all, I'll say that the financial crises we've experienced are uh, severe enough, but it, it's nothing compared to what is going to be coming when we have an energy descent. That's going to be a different order of magnitude. You know, thinking in terms of this uh, idea about the in geological time and that the oil is going to run out at some point in another maybe 50 to 100 years, that is a very different kind of crisis. The financial crisis is more of a, a bubble, um, which is a direct result of this of this neoliberal um, model which which creates more and more wealth for the wealthy the thing is what are they going to do with all that wealth and what they're what they're finding is that it's much easier to earn money by asset speculation than actually producing something for the real world and so what we've seen happening for the last 30 years is that uh, the the greatest brains, you might say, have been migrating into the financial sector, and they've been developing all kinds of uh, tools to, uh, s to suck the wealth out of the non-profit-seeking parts of our society, like the environment, first of all, first and foremost, but also from working people and from local communities. And so th they, they have found that it's easier to, to earn money by speculating in, in the stock market, in the currency market, in the f in f food futures, credit default swaps, you name it. All of these things are sort of making money from money, and they, they have no real useful uh, function. It's, but the problem is the volumes get so high, uh, like, like, for example, credit default swaps now, they're trillions and trillions of dollars larger than the whole gross national product of the entire planet. and. Uh, it's only a question of time until some of those things go, go wrong. They could easily go wrong, and for example, with the sovereign debt in Europe, mm -hmm. um, if we have another collapse like we had in Greece. So it's just, in my opinion, a, an accident waiting to happen because of this asset speculation. And in, in my opinion, I mentioned in my book, the three very simple changes could, could put a stop to that, but they will never be implemented. Mm -hmm. What are those three changes? Well, first of all, um, we, we have to reinstate something along the lines of, of Glass-Steagall. Mm -hmm. Glass-Steagall was actually an excellent law back in 1933 and it was, was uh, uh, repealed in 1999. And it basically separated traditional banking from 
from speculation, you might say, from investment banking of various kinds. Right, that was the Leahy uh, the bill that did that, Leahy. Yeah, in 99? Yeah. Yeah, and you see, the problem is that the, the, the guys who are doing all the speculating, when um, when they're linked to the traditional banks, then that's why they, they say, well, we, you can't let us fail. It's going to, it's going to ruin all the traditional banking. So that, that, they should be separated. There's also an immense conflict of interest. You know, on the one hand, they're... Uh, advising their customers to buy particular stocks and things, and at the same time, they they have their own trading function. They claim to be separated by ch Chinese walls, but um, who can be sure about that? There have been cases where we know that um, uh, th th there has been information passed across and so on. So, de so deregulation uh, has to be reversed. We have to get more uh, regulation. The other thing is uh, another second one is um, uh, naked derivatives. Mm -hmm. These are, you know, derivatives like options and futures and so forth. They are um, quite useful for a businessman to or a farmer, say, to protect himself against the harvest, changes in prices. So he can sell his crops in advance, and uh, maybe a pension fund can protect their uh, long-term interest by doing a credit uh, default swap or doing an interest swap. But as long as there's an underlying real interest, I think it's quite okay. But what's happening today? is that about 95% of all these uh, trades are done by people who have no in underlying interest. It's mm -hmm. as if, let's say you have a house and you have a, a fire insurance on your house, okay? If the house burns down, you'll pay. Imagine that you have a thousand of these hedge funds and, and, and large banks who are making bets on whether your house is going to burn down. That's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's what the credit default swaps do when they're naked. Let's say nobody has an interest. They're just betting on whether your house is going to burn down. Well, guess what? It's only a matter of time before somebody comes with a match in the middle of the night. And that is what I'm that's what I call front running. Mm -hmm. You know, they create these fantastically um, non-transparent vehicles and sell them to communities and counties and states and so forth. And, and then when, when they've got them all in place, they know they can affect uh, a, a crisis. They can either increase the interest rates or decrease the interest rates and crash the system so that they make enormous amounts of money no matter what happens with the rest of the economy. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say naked, naked derivatives should be banned completely. And the third thing uh, I mentioned is um, free capital flow across borders. There's absolutely no economic science, neither theoretical nor empirical, that shows that that's any benefit to anyone. The only reason that they do it is so they can get the money out fast. That means a cash grab. Yeah, and that's what happened in Asia in the late 90s. They got the money, took the money out so fast that they collapsed the economies of Indonesia and Malaysia and Thailand, Taiwan, South Korea. You talk about an emergent worldview, and I, I love the quote that you begin that uh, section with, with uh, by P.D.U. Spensky: "Everything is connected; nothing is separate." And mm -hmm. that is, I think, the core of your vision of economy and ecology. They're connected, and you can't take them apart. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that that is uh, something which the uh, the sort of the spiritual uh, leaders have said for centuries. Mm -hmm. But it's only here in the 20th century that we were able to show that it actually is true in, in terms of physics. You know, in, uh, uh, the quantum theory of physics now has proven experimentally that this is the case, that everything is connected, across, not only across uh, the Earth, but across the entire universe. Mm -hmm. This is the uh, quantum entanglement. Yes, exactly. And so that is to say uh, it's, it, it, it is a, a falsification of the idea of uh, René Descartes that, that has dom dominated our thinking for many years, that, that we are separate, that mm -hmm. the observer is separate from the observed, that the, that the world is somehow outside of us. Well, it's not. We're part of that, you know? It's just, and it's a, it, we are part of what we're, 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 we're seeing. It's not just separate from us. And so that is an important shift. And I think um, as more and more people realize that, and, and this is something which takes time, you know, uh, then uh, we will have a much better, better background for uh, beginning to appreciate that we have to work with nature and, uh, and not just consider it as, as something to be exploited. Now you talk about, uh, I think one of the things that's interesting is you talk about a paradigm shift and, uh, you know, and you mentioned Martin Luther's break with the Catholic Church to um, Newton. That we like to think of paradigm shifts that happens overnight. You know, there's there's a an announcement on TV. There's you know yeah. an iPad, and that's it. We're all done. The paradigm shifted, but paradigm shifts don't happen that 
fast. No, I mean, I'm, I'm using it in the original sense of, of Thomas Kuhn, who originated the concept uh, back in 1962, I think it was. Uh, and, I, and he applies it to the uh, evolution of science over long time frames, um, several hundred years often before the, a shift occurs. So it's, it's, I think that's the right way to use it. That's the way I use it. This other stuff of, of the, the latest car model and the latest, uh, you know, a sexy dress or whatever is a paradigm shift that uh, is an abuse of what I think is a very powerful uh, concept. And it's uh, just instant fashion. Yeah, yeah. It, so I like to use it in, in the original sense because I think it gives a lot of meaning to to ex helps us explain what's actually happening. Now, um, one of the things that's happening is y you talk about uh, uh, James Lovelock mm -hmm. and, and his Gaia theory. And I think that one of the things you mentioned that's so interesting uh, between uh, James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis uh, about endosymbiosis um, is that when this was first presented, people thought it was kind of spiritual mumbo jumbo, and now it's looked at as you know scientific and not just scientific and ecological fact, but economic fact as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was an interesting evolution uh, during the uh, period from about uh, the late '60s until the mid-90s, when the two of them were actually uh, having a very tough time because they were considered to be uh, uh, non-scientific. But gradually, there were a number of experiments which showed that the, the concepts that he was talking about were, were um, empirically uh, verified. And so gradually, they were accepted uh, into the scientific community. And that, that's an important thing also because um, the um, idea of, of the Gaia you know, which is the goddess of Mother Earth, it resonated my, very much with the, the early adapters of this new paradigm, you know, for them, and, and especially this photo that the astronauts took of the Earth. Mm -hmm. seen the Apollo space. photo, yeah. The Apollo photo, together with the Gaian theory, it just it kind of uh, ignited the ecological movement in, in the, the early 70s, and I was, I was part of that, you know, and it was very inspiring. And uh, so having, just having this symbol uh, of the of the the living earth and have this idea of the guy as the goddess, uh, that really uh, was an, perhaps more important than, than the scientific aspect in my opinion because it it launched the eco village movement the eco uh, uh, environmental movement which also led to eco villages later. Now y you talk about um, uh, how we would measure our success as we go forward, and you see there are, are uh, three three drivers. Um, ideological cooperation, economic income inequality, and rationality, because it's obvious that the disparity is causing problems. I'd like you to just comment on that and, and how these things will help us measure success by, you know, of the changes we need to make. Yeah, well, I think my point there is that as the paradigm shifts uh, towards a, a more uh, holistic kind of way of thinking, this, this ideology in itself will be one of the drivers of change because more and more people will accept this as a uh, their understanding of the way things are uh, we have for example the uh, the cultural creatives which paul ray has measured mm -hmm. has have grown from about four percent in the 70s to about a third of the population in uh, today in the states and in europe and so that's a as an indicator of how this um, ide ideology is gradually uh, getting more and more mainstream um, the, the second driver uh, going this way, I say, is uh, uh, economic, um, and this is because you know if we're going to have a sustainable future, we have to put some limits on the on the way we uh, use resources. And we have to, among other things, uh, CO2 emissions, but also the use of uh, metals, uh, various kinds, and phosphorus. Uh, the natural, uh, so the soil, for example, the water aquifers. We have to start bringing all of these things uh, under control. And once we do that, they're going to become more expensive to use. And therefore, the, the economic driver is that uh, once we use ecological economics and put a higher price on resources, it's going to force the private sector to, to develop new technologies which are more in keeping with nature so that it'll be more economic to uh, produce things uh, the way nature does. And, and I, I point out uh, in the book that nature has been developing solutions to these problems for, for billions of years. And if we look around us, what we see is all the success stories. All those that have survived have a story to tell. They have succeeded in uh, adapting to their environment uh, 
in such a way that they, they, they survive long term. And, and we have to study nature more to mimic it in order to develop similar technologies. But that's not going to happen until we change the, the, uh, the pricing structure. But it will happen. I think this next century is going to be a period of a, an explosion in, in the life sciences. And we're going to start to um, learn from nature. And the, th the third uh, observation I had was, I, ca I called it uh, the driver, um, was uh, simple rational thinking. Mm -hmm. And here I'm, I'm thinking, among other things, about one of the studies I, I quoted in the book, was, uh, which showed that there is a direct linear relationship between health problems and inequality. Right? Uh, so that the more unequal the income distribution is in a society, the worse are the health problems. And uh, this is a study by uh, two British researchers, Wilkinson and Pickett. And it's very, very significant because what it tells us is that uh, happiness and health are not uh, functions of material goods. It's not because we have more stuff that we, that, that we become healthier or happier. In fact, more stuff t tends to... Uh, more inequality tends to create problems for us. And uh, it has to do with um, the fact that uh, what really counts in society in your, is your, your self-esteem uh, in your local community. If you are accepted for who you are, you know, no matter what you do, if it could be very, you could be a good artist, you could be a musician, you could be just a friendly person who helps out, you could be a good politician, whatever, and you're, you're respected for that, then what we find is that a lot of these sickness, these diseases disappear. S stress, the stress level falls. There are less problems. Health becomes better. So what I'm saying is that there's a rational arguments for having a more egalitarian society with a more equal society, and we'll also save a lot of money at the same time. The United States, for example, uh, has the highest inequality among the industrialized countries. At the same time, it uses more money than anybody else on, on health care, um, and it has the worst... Uh, performance on this index that these two researchers developed are 10 different uh, aspects of, of physical and mental health. Isn't that incredible? Do you think? <laughs> it's, it seems, it's always seemed really crazy to me that we, that we pay so much and get so yeah. little and have the best. Yeah, I call it, I call it uh, wealth without health. Yeah. Now, <laughs> you talk about um, one of the things that's, that makes <clears throat> this book different from most any other kind of books along this line is you give us like a practical roadmap to get from where we are to a better place. Yeah. And so I'd like you to talk about uh, designing a Gaian world. Um, you talk about global, global governments on a human scale. Yeah. OK, well, you see, the problem is uh, we, have to, we have to redesign um, everything. Uh, if we're going to implement this new system, my ideal uh, of the world, as I outlined here, is one in which I think w the one which would satisfy, I think, most people would be one in which they had greatest control over their own local communities and what's happening in their own countries. That's not happening today. There's too much foreign influence everywhere. So the ideal world would be one in which you have many, preferably small, but many sovereign countries which each are in total control of their own economies. This requires that we have a new kind of trade, for example, as I said, where you can uh, have protectionism, to, and you can have capital controls. That is what is necessary. Sure, we need those. To, we to need those. But there's one problem that, that left there. You, you have to have some kind of centralization in terms of uh, environmental controls, because we know from the current situation that uh, these problems are so big, so these global problems, that they cannot be tackled at the le level of the individual state, not even the biggest state. So. We, we have to have a form of global governance, uh, some central agency that uh, has the right uh, has a, 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 the, to, to issue directives, for example, on uh, sustainability. And, and I'm also suggesting it should include human rights as well, because it's not enough to have a sustainable world. We want it to be a humane world at the same time. So that's my model, basically, that says uh, we have to cede uh, um, sovereignty in these two areas and keep the rest of our sovereignty local for the best and then, then the next question is how do we you know I, I, how do we get there uh, but th that brings us to my sort of breakaway strategy I don't know if you want to get into that yeah no let's let's talk about the breakaway strategy you have eight organizations and we need to get yeah. those going okay well the thing is one of the conclusions I, I come to in analyzing um, the current structure is that uh, 
the powers that be, large industrialized countries now who are more or less dictating things, in particular the USA, are not going to take the initiative to change things. They're, they're quite willing to sit on top of the cake, particularly as, as they're being basically taken over by, um, by the financial interests who, who are able to c control uh, the Congress and they're able to control legislation. So you can't confront them directly. You, you have a chilling statement by an agriculture CEO who says he's essentially happy to see the entire world go to hell in a handbasket so long as he gets I'm afraid I'm afraid that, that, that there are a lot of people who think that way, and uh, they may perhaps would rather have a dysfunctional world where they're in control than, than a more egalitarian world where they're uh, equal. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I'm saying that the initiative has to come from elsewhere, and I'm suggesting that it could come from some of the smaller countries who break away from the system, mm -hmm. and particularly they, they leave the WTO because the WTO has these fast rules about conflict resolution and all the things that we don't want uh, in terms of protectionism is, is not allowed and so on. But they don't have to leave the other institutions. They can continue to be members of the IMF and the World Bank and the United Nations, that's fine. Those relationships are all voluntary. But they have to leave the WTO. And then a small number, I'm suggesting maybe maybe eight or nine smaller countries with a good geographic spread and some industrial countries, some most, I think, developing countries, could form what I call a Gaian League, which says to the rest of the world, we're going to, we're going to show you how we think um, a new kind of economic uh, philosophy based on ecological economics and new institutions can um, be a, a new model which would be in the entire planet's interest. And at the same time, we will have a high priority on actually achieving sustainability long term so that our, our, our humanity survives, not just for 50 years, but for indefinitely. Yeah. And to do that, um, they have to actually form, formally form a kind of an association and then form these various institutions, a new, new trade organization and so on. You, you have a, a, an interesting list of, of organizations that, and you have an actual organization chart. I think that's the, that's one of the, the, the charms of this book is that you know you give us a story and then give us a, a conclusion to, to look towards the gay and trade organization, the gay and clearing guy and clearing union, development bank, Congress commission, uh, court of justice, the resource board, and the guy and council. And you ha even suggest some countries that could uh, form this, this league, Bolivia, Sri Lanka, Costa Rica, Iceland, Norway, Venezuela, Senegal, Bhutan, New Zealand, and Maldives, Tunisia, Mauritius, Malaysia, Switzerland. Um, I, you know, to my mind, when I was reading this, I was thinking, boy, too bad California, because <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we, we have a big economy here, and we, yeah. have, we carry a lot of weight. You know, the, California, in terms of the United States, is a, a seed organization in, in yeah. that our regulations tend to be a mm -hmm. cut ahead. Well, one of the things I mentioned also in the last part of the book is that if, if this ever gets off the ground, and I certainly hope it will on a small scale, and people start, gradually other countries start to join, I can imagine a situation where at some point um, some of the regions of the United States and maybe even China might say, hey, we would like to be members, but not as, as a, a, a total empire, but just as our region, maybe Cascadia or uh, California or Vermont. And so on. There are a lot of secessionist movements already in the USA. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not very powerful, but this could perhaps be the long-term result that um, we have a larger number of countries in the world who are breaking off from the, the larger ones and having greater control over their, their own local uh, environments and what's actually happening there. That's what I would hope because, you know, uh, in a sense, you have a more stable society if, if you have many small countries than if you have a few small, a few large countries and a lot of small countries. That The dynamics are different, you know, because the, the larger countries are thinking, hey, we're bigger than you, we should have privileges, you know, we're, we're, we're going to uh, da-da-da. So they're not equal, and so there's a bigger chance of conflict. So, and, you know. and you talk about uh, the way to expand is uh, out of the neighbors, the neighboring countries, and expand on a local uh, uh, basis, not a, not an international basis. Well, it's, it, it, undoubtedly, in the early stages, this, this, such a group of eight countries is probably going to start trading a little more with each other, mm -hmm. but they're still going to continue trading with uh, with their traditional partners. But I think you will see a gradual uh, shift, and, and that they will because the thing is, if they're going to implement ecological economics, they're going to have to have some uh, restrictions on, on what they import. 
because uh, you don't want to import things from, from uh, nations or uh, from companies that have produced them on lower standards, ecological standards. So for this reason, they're, they're in a sense probably going to be forced to trade more within the group initially. Um, that's true. I've been speaking with Ross Jackson. His new book is Occupy World Street. Thank you for joining me, Ross. Yeah, well, it's been nice to be here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.